Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is so rich. We, we welcome it now to us. I, I, I pray that we would receive it gladly, that you would speak to us through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you apply your word to each of our hearts? And then would you use that word to transform us, make us instruments better fit for your service, as you empower us to live the life that you have ordained for us this week. For your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I was uh, talking with uh, Keith Burasek uh, a while ago and, and found that we had overlapped a little bit. Uh, I was uh, serving at, at Highland Community Church in Wausau and we were sponsoring the Men's No Regrets Conference and uh, Keith had attended that. I wish I had known him then. It would have been great to connect over that. It's kind of fun talking about that conference. That conference has been a difference maker in a lot of lives. It's been a difference maker in my life. Have you ever been to a conference that has just made a big difference for you? A men's conference, a women's conference, uh, some conference. Those things tend to be uh, mountaintop experiences. At times that, that we get a real boost spiritually, but, but the challenge is what happens afterwards. Are you any different a month down the road, six months down the road? And what I find is that unless we make decisions at those conferences about what we're going to do after those conferences are done, our lives tend to go on pretty much as they always have, and the changes that, that we intend don't last all that long. The question I would ask is, can you make changes in your life without a conference? Uh, can we just live lives day to day that reflect godly priorities? We were in Nehemiah chapter 9 last week, and we looked at this idea of confession. We saw God's people confessing their sin to him, the people had been exposed to the word of God in chapter 8. They realized how far short of God's word they fell. And yet, as they came to God in confession, they came with an understanding of who he is. And so you, you'll recall last week we started with, Lord, you are, as we looked at, at chapter 9. And, and again and again, they spoke of who God is. And on the basis of that, they were able to come to him humbly and say, in light of that, Lord, here's who we are. And we have failed you, and we have fallen, and we have sinned against you. The basis of our ability to come to God humbly and confess our sin to him is God's own character. When we understand who he is, we can admit who we are, and we can come to him when we fail. When we come to him humbly, he doesn't beat us down or send us away, but he forgives us and he lifts us up. It's good news. This week, we want to look at the completion of repentance. And I say completion because it's not enough to confess. You know, the folks in chapter 9 confess their sin to God. It's not enough to confess our sin if we don't intend to do anything about it. Repentance is, is turning around. It's, it's going one way and realizing you're going the wrong way and turning around and going the other way. It's the consistent message of the prophets throughout the whole Old Testament. 
Uh, and the Hebrew word I've mentioned before is shuv. It, it means to turn. And the prophets wanted to give his people a shuv in the right direction, right? Uh, shuv, it's, it's turning. It's a 180 degree turn. If, if I wanted to grab a cup of coffee after the service is over and I headed out behind the platform and down the spiral staircase, I wouldn't be any closer to getting my cup of coffee until I turn around and go the right way to where the coffee is. It's the same in terms of the things that can hinder our relationship with God or make us ineffective in our service to him. Repentance, turning. We need to turn from those things that hinder our relationship with him, that make us ineffective for him. Now, that can be a a bit of a process. Uh, Repentance can come in stages, or it can come all at once. It can be a, a very major thing. It can happen quickly. I was driving downtown Chicago once, and Uh, had to gas up, and I pulled out of the gas station onto a one-way street headed the wrong way. And I saw the traffic light at the end of the block was turning, and this entire line of headlights was coming straight at me. The elements of repentance came together rather quickly in that moment. Had I not turned right then, it would have been disastrous for me. And it's the same with sin. When we fail to turn... It becomes disastrous. God reaches out to us to to get us to turn, and we need to pay attention when he does. He's faithful to discipline those he loves to bring us back. And the discipline isn't fun, and we don't want to ignore it when it comes. The same author who said the Lord disciplines those he loves also said it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't ignore when he is trying to bring you back. And when we see a brother or sister in sin, what do we need to do? We need to care enough to go after that person, to bring that person back, to warn of consequences of sin. When we think of the times that we have sinned and been brought back to God, we often realize the the key role played by a caring brother or sister in getting us to turn, don't we? Without that brother or sister, we may not have turned back. Can you think of times in your own life when that's been the case? I can think of times in mine. I'll, I'll humble myself and tell you about one of them. Many years ago when I was in the Army, um, Two friends of mine and I all got promoted uh, right around the same time and believed we needed to have a promotion party. It's kind of the thing to do. And since the other two lived off post and I lived on post, it was decided that the party should be at our place. And so uh, I agreed to that. And uh, problem number one was my friends wanted to bring alcohol to my home, a home that my wife and I had decided would stand for Christ. So that's the culture of the army, though. Alcohol is everywhere. And after some discussion, I caved in. I said, okay, we can do that. That was problem number one. Problem number two is that people got drunk. 
at my promotion party in my house, this house that we had said would stand for Christ. I should have seen that one coming. Problem number three was that I defended my decision when my dear wife tried to tell me it was the wrong decision. She saw it as a bad witness, and it was. But I was too busy rationalizing my decision to admit my fault. A day or two later, I was out for a run with one of my lieutenants, young Christian officer, and the topic came up as we ran, and I remember the conversation. He said, you know, sir, you, you asked God for a godly wife, and he gave you one. You need to listen to her. It's a good word. It's a good word. It's a word I needed to hear. And I'm so thankful for that brother who cared enough to take the risk of telling me I was wrong. Who knows what harm I would have done if I had continued in my rationalization. We need our brothers and sisters to help us when we need to turn. We should be encouraged, not offended, when they care enough to call us out. Nathan did that to David. Took a great risk. To offend a Middle Eastern monarch is is no small thing. And yet David humbled himself when Nathan said, you're the man, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord. One of the greatest things a brother or sister can do, though, after calling us out is to help us make a plan and check in on us to see how we are doing at implementing that plan. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 10, bet you thought we'd never get to the text this morning, what we see in Nehemiah chapter 10 is a plan for corrective action. Right at the end of chapter 9, the last verse of chapter 9 tells us that what is about to follow is a firm covenant to deal with the sins that were confessed in chapter 9. And you'll see as we go through it that it is specific, it is achievable, and it is measurable. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters. Verse 31, we will not buy. Verse 32, we take on ourselves the obligation. Verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits. Verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. All of that, very specific, very achievable, very measurable. See, it's one thing to recognize your shortcomings. It's another to plan to do something about them. And it's still another that will, still another to make a plan that will help you see your promises through. That's why I titled this message, Planning to Keep Our Promises. So often you will need a brother or a sister to help you to make a plan and to follow it through. And so I would encourage you today to do two things. One is to seek out that brother or sister. Get the help you need to make a plan. There's no shame in admitting that we need help. And the other thing I would ask you to do is to be that brother or sister to someone who needs your help. Maybe as we look at Nehemiah chapter 10, you'll get the encouragement you need to do one or both of those things. 
This chapter, by the way, is a great lesson in pre-solution, in, in planning for challenges that will come to us. It's where you solve a problem ahead of time. You come up with a solution for a problem you anticipate so that when the problem comes, you're ready for it. The people here in Nehemiah chapter 10 looked at key areas in their lives and they decided how they wanted to live in those key areas. They chose a course of action that would keep them from falling to temptation that they knew they would encounter. And that makes an enormous difference when the actual situation arises because the decision's already made. That's what lies behind a program that my kids experienced in grade school called D.A.R.E., Drug Abuse Resistance Education, D-A-R-E. The idea is, is that they showed the kids the things that they might experience and, and might be invited to try and taught them ahead of time how to say no. Uh, it's, it's what lies behind the idea of a website called Covenant Eyes, where the things you see on the internet are shared with a trusted friend that you've designated, and you've agreed to that, and so it keeps you from going to those places on the internet. Covenant Eyes. Jeremiah said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Uh, it's what lies behind our wedding vows. When we make those vows and then we see a temptation down the road, we go, you know, that has already been addressed. I have already said I'm not going to do that. Pre-solution. And when the people heard the law read in chapter 8, and they realized how short of it they fell, they confessed their sin in chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, they pledged themselves to reflect godly priorities in their lives in four areas. And these same four areas are going to look familiar to us because they are the very battlegrounds on which the battle for the priorities in our lives will be fought. Four great areas for us to look at. We can make some decisions for ourselves in these areas, and doing that will be key for us if we desire to live by godly priorities. Are you ready? Here we go. Uh, area number one is relationships. Relationships. Verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Relationships. The issue for them was intermarriage. Intermarriage. The Israelites were intermarrying with the pagan people of the surrounding culture. The very thing God warned them about a millennium sooner, as a millennium earlier, as they came out of Egypt and were entering the promised land. Don't intermarry those people. They will have the wrong influence on you. Exodus chapter 34, verses 11 to 16 Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. 
For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. This intermarriage with the peoples of the land, the the people would, would bring their idols into those marriages And soon God's people were wandering from him to worship other gods. We need to pay attention to the influences in our lives as well. Don't pursue relationships that will take you away from God. Young people, in particular, do you hear me today? Don't pursue relationships that will take you away from God. Now, you may say, how will I reach my friends for Christ if I don't have relationships with them? And it's a good question, and I appreciate the intent. But if you are not strong enough to be the influence in that relationship, you probably shouldn't be in it. God will never ask you to compromise who he's called you to be in order to reach somebody for him. Your unbelieving friends know you're different. They know it. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. They know you're different, and they expect you to be different. So you don't need to conform to their lifestyle to influence them. And if you do conform, the influence has gone the wrong way. Remember the thing I said a while ago about wearing white gloves when you're working in your garden? Which way does the influence go? Your garden dirt will not get glovey, right? It goes the other way. So where's the influence going in your relationships? You need to reevaluate some of the company that you keep. Do you need to develop some Christian relationships that will reinforce what you believe and want to live by? You'll have opportunity to sign up for growth groups right after the service today, if you're not in one already, and you can fortify some of those relationships that can help build you up? And are you developing any relationships with non-Christian people with whom you can be the influence that leads them to Christ? We do need to be in those relationships. We just need to be careful which way the influence is going. So the first issue, relationships. Second issue, work and rest. Verse 31 Work and rest. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Work and rest. The issue for them was Sabbath. Sabbath. People of the surrounding area were bringing goods for sale on the Sabbath. And it was causing the Jews who had returned from the Babylonian captivity to devalue the Sabbath day, to fall out of God's plan for work and rest. Anybody here remember blue laws? Remember blue laws? Mm, Maybe not. A little young, I remember when I was a boy. You couldn't find a store open on a Sunday. 
And the, the, the laws that kept those stores closed were called the blue laws. And as our culture has become increasingly secular, now it's really odd to find a store that's not open on a Sunday. Uh, there are notable exceptions, but most of the stores are open. I, I have a friend uh, who, when uh, blue laws were lifted, he still wouldn't shop on a Sunday because his desire to shop on a Sunday would mean somebody else got to work on a Sunday, and he wanted to honor the Lord's Day. I admire Chick-fil-A for being closed on Sunday. They could make a ton of money being open, but they want to respect the Lord's Day. Now, the reason this is an issue here in Nehemiah chapter 10, and for us as well, is that God has ordained cycles of work and rest. He showed us the pattern in his own creation of the universe when he rested on the seventh day. He ceased work. He reflected on the significance of what he had done. And he invites us to do the same thing. In Mark chapter 2, we find Jesus and the twelve walking through grain fields on the Sabbath and plucking heads of grain as they walk. And the Pharisees were quick to condemn them for it. But Jesus said what? The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for our refreshment and our renewal. We don't think about that very much, but we ignore it to our peril. We need rest. Can I get an amen? We need rest. It's a part of God's design for us. He has built into life itself a cycle of work and rest. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath applied to Jews and to all who were in their house and to their animals and to their land. If you look at verse 31, we will forego the crops of, of the seventh year. The land needed rest too. And all of that was intended to be a witness to God's ability to provide for those who trust in him. It's all intended to point to God who provides for us both work and rest. The folks at Chick-fil-A are trusting God to provide for them on six days of sales per week. And the closed store here in town or the closed store at the airport on Sunday is a witness to God's provision. And especially in this age, people should be able to look at us, God's children, and see sanity. People who are willing to rest. And we can only rest, cease striving, stop working when we realize who God is and who it is that meets our needs. Sundays are not particularly restful for me. Some of you think it's the only day I work. I suspect Sundays are, are not restful for some of you as well. The question is, do you take time sometime for rest and replenishment? Do you take time sometime to reflect on the significance of your work, the values you want to live by, the direction your life is headed? You take time sometime. I took a, a class in the Doctor of Ministry program at Trinity on spiritual disciplines taught by a man named Dallas Willard, who was a brilliant and godly brother in Christ, who taught philosophy at University of Southern California, secular school, godly man. And I remember on that first Monday morning, he stood at the podium, looked out at us, and he said, some of you need Elijah's discipline. And we didn't know what he meant. 
until he took us to 1 Kings chapter 19, where we see Elijah exhausted by his confrontation with the prophets of Baal. We see him sleeping under a broom tree to be awakened and fed by an angel and then to return to sleep. And he looked at us that Monday morning and he said, some of you need to sleep in tomorrow morning more than you need to be here in this class. And the question is, can you trust God enough to do nothing for a period of time? Can you trust him to cease striving, to cease working and reflect on the significance of what he's called you to? It's an important discipline. So second issue, work and rest. The third issue is worship. I'm going to read verses 32 and 33, but notice as I do the different functions of worship in these few verses, 32 and 33. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. Worship. The issue for them was developing specific plans to implement worship. They didn't have systems to make sure things would get done so that worship could happen. And the reason this is an issue is without a specific plan, it wasn't getting done and it won't get done until we make plans for it. There's a lot of effort that goes into Sunday morning worship here. Musicians practice. Elders work on what they're going to say as they lead the worship service and as they speak to the children. I study the word in order to be able to present it on Sunday morning. But do we individually have our own personal plan for worship? I realize I'm I'm probably preaching to the choir on this one, uh, since you're here after all. But lots of people just look at Sunday morning as a time to sleep in, and, and they won't be here on Sunday morning. So is corporate worship... A priority. I honestly don't know how I'd function without it. But how about personal worship in our lives as well? I found that if I don't carve time out, that won't happen either. I need to pick a place. I need to take the time. I need to spend some time with God, make it a priority. And when I take the time to quiet myself before God, I can gain His perspective on the day that he wants me to live. And then I can step into it with confidence. Third issue is worship. And the fourth issue is finances. Notice here, as I I read uh, verses 37 to 39, the emphasis on giving. And it says, we're going to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. 
And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. The issue for them was the support of the Levites. And the reason this was an issue is because the Levites gave their full-time attention to the temple. They had no land inheritance. No land, no crops, no crops, no grain, no grain, no bread. Uh, the, the rest of the people needed to care for the people who were giving full-time attention to the temple. Now, what's that look like for us? For us, for ministries to go forward here, we need to be financially responsible as well. I'm glad to see that the finances here are strong. I don't look into who gives what. But I do know that in most churches, the 80-20 rule applies. 80% of the income for the church comes from 20% of the people. Does that apply here? I don't know. But it comes down to how we each steward the income that God provides for us. Do we see ourselves as owners of that income or as stewards? Do we see it as our money or do we see it as something that God entrusts to us to use according to his purposes? Do you have a plan for your finances, or do your finances just kind of happen? Our giving says a lot about our priorities. Five minutes with a person's checkbook or visa bill will tell you a lot about that person's priorities. You'll see what they're doing in the categories of essential things, housing and transportation and food, things that we all have to have, but things that we can still make choices about You'll also see what they're doing with the discretionary dollars that are left over after those necessities are taken care of. How much goes to entertainment, how much goes to education, to toys, and other things. Now, if I were to say entertainment for me, that's ah, not a priority at all. It's really low priority. But you saw on my visa bill that I pay for the top cable TV package, and I've been to every restaurant in town, and my babysitting bill is enormous. You know I'm not telling you the truth. And if I were to say, you know, the Lord's work, that's really first priority to me. But if you were to look at my checkbook and see that the only checks I write to support the Lord's work are written after I've done everything else that I have wanted to do in all the other categories, you would conclude I'm not telling the truth there either. What we spend our money on tells what's really important to us. And the Old Testament standard that we see here in Nehemiah chapter 10 was the tithe. Does that apply to us as New Covenant people? I would suggest it does, based on Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Take a look. Here it is. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These, these justice and mercy and faithfulness, you should have done without neglecting the others. What are the others? Tithing your mint and dill and cumin. The NIV says uh, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. We uh, can actually not just meet the standard of Old Testament believers, we can exceed it 
because God has blessed us so richly. And as God prospers us, we can exceed the tithe and give more. That may sound really strange to you. You may be nowhere near tithing. What should you do? Well, look at it this way. What percentage of your income are you giving to God's work? Maybe you've never looked at it that way before. You've taken something out of your wallet and put it in the plate as it's come around. But what percentage of your income does that reflect? Maybe it's half a percent. Maybe it's 1%. Maybe it's 2%. And 10% seems a long way off. But are you willing to trust God enough to increase that percentage by a point for a couple of months and see if he doesn't just provide for your needs? I'll bet he will. In fact, a friend of mine gave his congregation a money-back guarantee. He said, if you tithe and God doesn't meet your expenses, send them to me and I will pay them. If you want to take that risk, I'll give you his address. But trust God to care for you as you increase by one percentage point. And see how that goes for a couple months. And then you can increase it by another percentage point and see he will provide again. And keep going until you're bringing the full tithe into the storehouse. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven and pour, for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. Another version says, I will pour out such a blessing you will not be able to contain it. You can't outgive God. Relationships, work and rest, worship, finances. Four key areas for our life. If someone were to ask me, Pastor, could you help me set some godly priorities for my life? I don't think I could think of four areas that I could steer them toward that would do better than those four areas that are addressed in Nehemiah chapter 10. Relationships, work and rest, worship and finances. I would invite you to do some homework in those four areas yourself. And you'll find some help in the questions for further thought in your program New Year's resolutions have been made, and already they're failing all over the world. They fail for a lack of an implementation plan. People say the road to hell is paved with good intentions because those intentions never got the support of a plan to put them into action. If you fail to plan... You're planning to fail. I want to encourage you to look at those four areas that we've examined this morning. Look at those four areas of your life and set a plan into motion for establishing and living by godly priorities. Will you do that? I dream sometimes about what God could do through a group of people like us who will decide to live by godly priorities to take his words seriously, to fear nothing but God, to hate nothing but sin, and to serve God wholeheartedly. Here's a chance to get started in four key areas of our lives. Will you take that this week? Nehemiah chapter 9, the last verse, the people committed themselves 
to the plan that's unfolded in chapter 10. Will you do the same? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the practical nature of your word, how it speaks to the issues of our lives that, that we live at. And, and I just pray that you'd help us now to examine those areas ourselves and see how we can align our priorities with your word that we might live lives that glorify you and that show others how a life ordered by your word looks, that they might see something in it that they want for themselves, that we might be an effective witness for you. In Jesus' name, amen.